Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you again to uh, Pastor Nathan and the council for having me come. Uh, and thank you for encouraging me to keep going with these Beatitudes. I had not intended it uh, to kind of be a mini-series, but it was spiritually profitable for me. I hope it was for you as well. Uh, last week, we looked at blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who partner with the God of peace who brings a kingdom of peace by sending Jesus to make peace through the cross. There was one verse I wanted to mention last week, but I decided to save it as a transition to our final beatitude, because listen to what Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 10. He says, Do you think I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but a sword. And he goes on to describe bringing divisions in even the closest human relationships, a man and his father, a daughter and her mother. I'm sure there are people in this room who have experienced how Jesus can create a painful spiritual conflict in their own family. From the prophetic hope, to the angelic announcement at his birth, to the apostolic testimony, Jesus is described as the one who comes to bring peace. So why, in this one case, does Jesus say the opposite? That he has come not to bring peace, but conflict. Well, I think he's speaking provocatively to prepare the disciples. As you go out to share the good news of God's reign, some people will accept it, and others will oppose it. It will divide those who hear, and it will come with a personal cost to those who bring the message. So if there's conflict and difficulty, Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. If you want to bring peace into the world, if you want to bring my peace into the world, you need to be prepared for friction trouble, and hardship, which leads us into this final beatitude. Blessed are the persecuted. So let's hear again uh, one more time the beatitudes this morning from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. I'm also going to read the very end of the chapter, verses 43 to 48. Uh, I would like to just spend a couple moments reflecting on those verses as well. Uh, let's hear the reading of God's word this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, let me begin with three brief, uh, obligatory, but important comments about persecution. Uh, persecution is not a specifically Christian phenomenon. Uh, no one should ever give the impression that Christians are the only people being persecuted. Uh, right now, from the Uyghur people in China to the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar and the global resurgence of anti-Semitism, uh, Christians should be concerned for and listen to the cries of all oppressed people and not just our own. Second, Christians in the West should not speak glibly about persecution. Uh, we enjoy the benefits of pluralism and democracy and cultural privilege in ways that many Christians in the world don't. Persecution passages should evoke empathy, solidarity, and prayer for those who have to endure many things that thankfully we do not directly experience. And then just third comment about persecution generally. The Bible's persecution passages are not meant to give us a persecution complex. That is an exaggerated sense that everything that makes our life hard or challenging or unpleasant is persecution. Uh, in certain quarters today, everything from Christianity's diminishing cultural influence to COVID masking policies gets labeled as persecution. Uh, this is what Walker Percy calls word pollution. Uh, it only makes it harder to discuss anti-Christian persecution that is really happening in the world today. Okay, with those comments out of the way, for those who truly experience persecution, Jesus speaks this remarkable beatitude. Uh, the, all the Beatitudes are remarkable, but this one especially so because there are several things about it that make it stand out from all of the others. Let me tell you a couple of them. It is the only Beatitude, this last one, that moves to the second person. 
all of the other Beatitudes have been in the third person. Blessed are the, or blessed are those who. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But in verse 11, Jesus speaks to his disciples directly, Blessed are you when others insult you, persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you. He is making this beatitude personal in a way that he has not before. Uh, this is also the only double beatitude. All of the other beatitudes are one short sentence. But here we have the beatitude in verse 10, and it is restated in verses 11 and 12. Jesus considered this beatitude as being significant enough that he repeated it and expanded upon it. Maybe he knew there was something about this beatitude that we needed to hear more than once. It is also the only beatitude that includes a command. The other beatitudes don't offer any guidance for mourners, for the meek, for the merciful, for peacemakers. But here Jesus gives specific instructions. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus feels the need to tell his disciples how to respond to their situation. One more, and there are others actually, but just one more for now. Finally, this is the only beatitude where Jesus explicitly refers to himself. Jesus never inserts himself into any of the other beatitudes, but here, after saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, Jesus adds a blessing for those who are reviled, persecuted, and slandered on my account, or for my sake, depending on your version. Jesus is letting us know he is the reason for the trouble that may be coming our way. Uh, this is the climax of all the Beatitudes. I think it also looks back and reflects back on all of the other Beatitudes that we've learned about so far. And I want to look at this Beatitude under two points. So kids, if you were worried there were going to be five again this week, just two. Uh, the, the reason for persecution and the response to persecution. And in both cases, I want to give the same answer. Following Jesus in a life shaped by the Beatitudes. Following Jesus in a life shaped by the Beatitudes is the reason for persecution. And following Jesus in a life shaped by the Beatitudes is the response to persecution. Uh, so first, the reason for persecution. Uh, Jesus describes three types of opposition in verse 11. Reviling, that is verbal abuse and insults that are heaped upon you. Persecution, which here as a broad term includes things like physical abuse, imprisonment, beatings, and more. And falsely speaking evil. And the key word there is falsely. These are 
malicious accusations that are intended to damage your reputation and cause other painful consequences, what we would call slander. So all three of these things, reviling, persecution, uh, falsely speaking evil, can be considered under this broader heading of persecution. Jesus also uses two qualifying phrases to make crystal clear when this persecution is blessed. In verse 10, he calls it persecution for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake has to do with living in accordance with and seeking after God's righteous and just ways. And in verse 11, he calls it persecution on account of me or for my sake. That is, persecution that comes because we are identifying with and associating ourselves with Jesus, not just by a verbal confession, but by a loyal life that reflects how Jesus himself lived. For righteousness' sake and because of me. These two phrases really go together. They are like two different angles on the same thing or different facets of the diamond. Because of righteousness focuses on a just way of life. And because of me focuses on the loyalty and commitment and allegiance to Jesus that produces that life. And by using these two phrases, because of righteousness and because of me, Jesus highlights that the question of blessed persecution is not, are you being attacked? But why are you being attacked? It's very interesting. Peter reflects on this beatitude very directly in his first epistle in chapter 4. He says, if you suffer for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's our beatitude. Peter's almost directly quoting it. And then he adds, but not if you suffer because you are a murderer, a thief, or a meddler. That would not be suffering for righteousness' sake, and that would not be suffering for Jesus' sake. Uh, I think it's interesting, by the way, that along with being a murderer and a thief, Peter includes meddling, sticking your nose in other people's business, telling people what to do and how to live. I think his point is that like being a thief or a murderer, meddlers should not be surprised when they receive hostility. Uh, we live in a time when a lot of people inside the church are starting to ask the question, how much of the marginalization, hostility, and reviling toward the church in our time is because of meddling, politically or socially, trying to impose so social norms on other people, instead of modeling, modeling how to repent and follow Jesus. Contempt is not always persecution. Indeed, Jesus' very next words, right after this beatitude, is that the salt of the earth can lose its flavor and no longer be good for anything but being cast into 
the fire. Blessed persecution is for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake. But what does a life for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake really look like? I think that the first seven Beatitudes have already shown us. It is a life marked by the vertical traits of spiritual poverty, godly sorrow, meekness, and hungering and thirsting for justice and righteousness. And it is a life marked by the horizontal traits of showing mercy, being an integrated, sincere person in relationship to others, and making peace. Now you might be thinking, why would humble, meek, lovers of mercy and peace who long for a better world ever be persecuted? Don't we want more people like this in the world? Don't we need more people like this in the world? But that would be to misunderstand just how countercultural the Beatitudes really are. The poor in spirit will always be abused and run over by the self-sufficient. Those who mourn will always be judged by those who worship positivity and happiness. The meek will always be scorned as naive and weak by the self-assertive and domineering. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will always be laughed at by the indifferent and hated by those who benefit from the status quo. The merciful will always be reviled by the unforgiving. The pure in heart will always be ridiculed by those who know how to manipulate the system. And the peacemakers will always be mocked by those who celebrate aggression and retaliation. A life shaped by the Beatitudes is a gracious refusal to compromise with the spirit of the world, and that evokes hostility. Because the world, with its idols and compromises and priorities, cannot accept this kind of life. I mean, isn't this why Jesus was persecuted? He was called a glutton and a drunkard because in humility he ate and drank with social outcasts. He was reviled because he spent time not with the dignified religious leaders of the day, but with a woman of ill repute and Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. The pastors of his time accused him of being in league with Satan for showing mercy to a mute man and then plotted to kill him when he showed mercy to a man with a withered hand. He was ridiculed when in his meekness he would not come down from the cross and save himself. To say nothing of the way the soldiers shamed, mocked, spit upon, and beat him 
drove a crown of thorns into his head and violently murdered him when he came to make peace. It was not because he beat people up with the Bible that Jesus was persecuted. He was hated, slandered, and ultimately killed because of his humble, meek, scandalously merciful love. Before we call something blessed persecution, I think it's worth asking, are these beatitudes characteristic of my life? Am I living for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake as expressed in humility, godly sorrow, meekness, justice, sincerity, mercy, and peacemaking? If so, Jesus says, don't be discouraged. Don't, don't be sad. There's a blessing in what you, have, what you have suffered to comfort and sustain you. Blessed are those who are reviled and rejected for identifying with and acting like Christ. A life shaped by the Beatitudes is the reason for persecution. What about the response to persecution? Well, we already said this is the only beatitude that includes a command. Rejoice and be glad. Again, it's amazing how counterintuitive the beatitudes can be. Most of our lives we spend trying to avoid these kinds of hardships. Jesus says, when they come, rejoice and be glad. Luke even has Jesus adding the words, and leap for joy. Your reward is great in heaven. I think that reward points back to the phrase in verse 10, theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Maybe you noticed, by the way, this is the same promise as the first beatitude in, on spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. We've kind of come full circle. Jesus closes the loop. Blessed are you when you are humble before God, and blessed are you when you are humbled before men. Rejoice in both cases, because you have what really matters, the kingdom. Rejoice at having found something that has more value than the entire world. Jesus also says, rejoice because you are in good company. They persecuted the prophets who came before you. The prophets were also people who lived upside down lives that challenged those around them and they suffered for it. You are part of this great society with Elijah who had to flee from Jezebel and Jeremiah who got thrown into the well and Daniel who spent the night in the lion's den and others. And as we heard earlier, uh, as Pastor Nathan read in the service, with the greatest prophet, Jesus himself, who says, if the world hates you, it hated me first. And a servant is not greater than his master and you are his servant, so rejoice. Paul says we get to share in the fellowship 
of his sufferings. Joy, though, I want to point out, is not the totality of the response that Jesus expects from his disciples in the face of hostility. And that's why I read that final section of Matthew chapter 5. I don't think it's good for us uh, to talk about verses 10 to 12 without talking about verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. I think it's worth noting, this actually encourages me, I think it's worth noting that Jesus does not negate the category of enemy. Jesus doesn't say, because I'm here with my grace, there are no longer any enemies, only friends and brothers. Jesus doesn't want us to gaslight ourselves and pretend that everyone is a friend when they're really not. According to Scripture, God has enemies, Israel has enemies, and certainly if we're living as God wants us to, we will find that we have enemies. Christians are not people who don't have enemies. Christians are people who care for their enemies. And that's what Jesus makes very clear in verse 44 as he commands both horizontal and vertical care for his enemies, or for our enemies. Jesus says, love your enemies. Love the people who are not just a thorn in your side, but the people who have a boot on your neck or put a sword to your throat. According to the immediately preceding verses, love those who force you to carry their pack by going another mile with them. Or those who sue you for your tunic by giving them your cloak. Don't be passive toward them and don't retaliate against them, but work for their good. And Jesus also says, pray for those who persecute you. That's the vertical kind of care. I'm pretty sure he doesn't mean a prayer like, may the ground swallow them up so they vanish from the face of the earth, now and forever, alleluia, amen, selah. You and I might have prayed prayers like that before. I don't think that's what Jesus means. He means pray for their well-being. Entreat God for their reconciliation to God and to us. And Jesus goes so far to say that loving enemies who persecute you is the evidence of belonging to God's family because that is what God himself does. Verse 45, God loves people indiscriminately, sending the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust, regardless of whether they deserve it or not regardless of whether they respond correctly or not, regardless of whether they ever acknowledge the true source of this goodness and kindness, because they are still made in his image and his likeness. And we are to love our enemies generously, liberally, and indiscriminately, because this is what our Father does. Now I want to ask the question again, 
How can we have joy in persecution and respond in love toward our enemies? And I think the answer is we have to be trained and shaped by the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, I see them as the virtues out of which the more concrete practices of the joyful love of our enemies emerge. To really love our enemies, we need spiritual poverty that says that person that, I, that is my enemy right now, that person is not my greatest enemy. That person is not the one who has hurt me the most, lied to me the most, led me into sins and trouble the most. My worst enemy looks at me in the mirror every day. Therefore, I have more in common with my enemies than I want to admit. To love our enemies, we need meekness. We have to set aside self-assertion and control and put our hope and trust in God because we know how easy it is for the persecuted to become persecutors to become the church of Constantine and the Crusades and the Inquisition and the witch trials. To love our enemies, we need to hunger and thirst for biblical justice because we know that's better than our own justice that only perpetuates the cycle of attack and retaliation and brokenness and attack and retaliation and brokenness. We need to delight in mercy turning away from anger and revenge so we won't be overcome by evil and can overcome evil with good. We need peacemaking spirits that says, you know what's more beautiful and lovely and valuable than me defeating you or conquering you? It's me befriending you. The Beatitudes, if we understand them, are the qualities we need to respond correctly to persecution with spiritual joy and love for others. Again, if you understand them, they are both the reason for the persecution that may come our way and the very thing that shapes us to respond in a way that is pleasing to God. I just want to conclude with one thought. We are in a moment of time that to me feels more than ever like the world of the tax collectors and Gentiles that Jesus describes in verses 46 and 47. People who love and agree, people who love those who love and agree with them. People who welcome those who welcome and agree with them. But let us never forget this. You and I are here today because a man who was bruised and broken by a world that did not love or welcome him loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him on a cross that he didn't deserve. We have breath in our lungs. We have faith in our hearts because while we were enemies, God loved us and made us his friends through the death of his son. 
And we will not love our enemies until we call on the one who loved us when we were his enemies, the one who can put his love in our hearts. And then we can begin to live out this beatitude and the beatitudes as a whole as he did, which if you really understand it, is the life of the kingdom of heaven, the greatest joy and true happiness. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beatitude and for all of the beatitudes which call us into this upside-down way of kingdom life. Thank you that in the midst of hardship, trial, and opposition that may come for righteousness' sake and for Jesus' sake, we have this promise of blessing, uh, the promise of the kingdom of heaven, the promise that already we can share in the life of Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings as we love those uh, who are hostile towards us as he did for us on the cross. We pray all this in Christ's sake and for his and in his name. Amen.